again, and there before me was a flying scroll. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll, 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. And he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timbers and its stones. If you've just come <laughs> into our series in this little book in Zechariah, you might be going, what the heck is this? Another crazy part of the Bible that makes absolutely no sense. Well, hopefully uh, that will be clarified as we uh, get stuck into this passage. But first, I'd just like to um, kick off uh, with a question. Of all Jesus' teachings, what, what would you say is the standout teaching? Like, if you were going to say, if you know anything about Jesus, what would be the one thing that you know that he really pushed on? It would be, love your neighbour as yourself, wouldn't it? Like, everybody knows that. Love your neighbour as yourself. That, that's, a, that's a basic, standout teaching of Jesus. It's, it's also a classic command in the Old Testament in the Bible. Uh, love your neighbour as yourself. And I'm sure many of us have heard the story of Jesus, uh, of the good, of the good Samaritan. Yeah. Where he tells, it's a story that he told to illustrate who our neighbor is and might be that our neighbor is actually anyone, particularly a stranger who needs our mercy. That's God's law. That's his command. As those who know God in Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself is the most basic command. Right. Uh, so let's let that command uh, fly around in your head for a little bit, right? Uh, maybe imagine it written on a big scroll. A big scroll flying around maybe in your house. Imagine that. Flying around in your thoughts. Love your neighbour as yourself. There it is, this massive scroll flying around. Because something like this is what Zechariah saw in his vision that we're looking at today. But before we get there, let's recap on where we've been. From the day that God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt uh, many, many, many years ago and brought them out of slavery in Egypt into the Promised Land in Canaan, for hundreds of years in the Promised Land, the Israelites, they tested God's patience. They disobeyed his laws. They went after other gods. They relied on the nations around about them more than on God the kings, after the famous King David, they were mostly trash. But even the few good ones couldn't make up for all the bad that the bad ones did. And so finally God had just had enough. He had a gut full of them, so he boots them out of the Promised Land. Uh, in 587 BC, God gives them over to the Babylonians. The Babylonians, they invade, they, they crush the capital, Jerusalem. They exile the Israelites to their to their capital, Babylon. But despite this, despite God's anger at his people and letting this happen, he promises them something through the prophet Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. This is what God said through the prophet Jeremiah. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you 
and fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place. See, God still has an eye for his ancient people, the Israelites, right? He wants to restore their fortunes back in the promised land, and to that end, he sees the Persians defeat Babylon, the Babylonians. And the Persian king, Cyrus, followed by the well, the third Persian king, the, the uh, king Darius, they, these kings, these Persian kings, actually encouraged the Israelites to, who were in exile to go back to the land of Judah. Uh, to, to go back and return to the rubble of Jerusalem and the rubble of the temple in Jerusalem and to, uh, to rebuild it, which some do, but it's slow work. And that is about the time when Zechariah rocks up. And God gives him a bunch of visions. Uh, the 70 promised years that are coming up, God, he is, he's good to keep his promise to restore the Israelites uh, in that promise, but for all of it, He's not actually sure if the Israelites really understand what that means. So, uh, Zechariah starts his ministry uh, saying, and hopefully you will be keeping up with the cards that have been uh, regularly coming, This is a, a visual prompt. Zechariah starts his ministry saying, The Lord says this, Return to me, and I'll return to you. And then God gives Zechariah a bunch of visions, uh, a little bit like daydreams. Visions which uh, lay out what God sees is going to happen. Uh, firstly, there's a vision of horsemen, uh, God's undercover agents, secretly going out over the planet uh, like spies, showing us all that God sees at all. There's nothing on this planet that's hidden from him, uh, nothing that he doesn't see, particularly uh, what's done to his special people, the Israelites, and who's doing it, uh, and how those people have abused his ancient uh, people, the Israelites. And so while he gives Zechariah visions of him building up Jerusalem again, building up Jerusalem, he also shows him visions of those nations who mistreated his people, pictured as uh, beastly and as actually as bullhorns like on a helmet, who will actually be terrified and brought down by craftsmen like Babylon was by the Persians, uh, and how he'll then be a protective wall of fire around his people in the new Jerusalem, full of people uh, coming from all over the world. And that the way he's going to bring about this is actually through a couple of leaders, a couple of key leaders. Firstly, uh, his high priest Joshua, chosen and loved by God, despite the filth of his wickedness and the wickedness of the people that he represents, the Israelites, God chooses to clean them up and to be led by to his two servants and those key leaders, the first one being Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, uh, the descendant of David, which we saw in the vision last week are pictured as two olive trees, Joshua and Zerubbabel, bringing the oil to keep the light of the presence of God burning in the midst of his people. But this, the presence of God with his people, Pictured in the vision of that candelabra, the menorah, uh, signifying God's presence amongst his people. It's an uncomfortable presence because God is holy and his people are not. And so the light of his presence, it's an exposing and uncomfortable light. And as the next vision of Zechariah shows us, that's where we're going to see this uncomfortable light of of, uh, God amongst his people. The vision that we're looking today is we see God's law, like a flying scroll, 
uh, exposing sinners, the thief and the liar particularly, uh, and consuming them, house and all. So that's where we're going today. That's where the passage is taking us. To see that God's law exposes sin and consumes sinners. And why we desperately need Jesus. So firstly, God's law as a flying scroll. Uh, We read it earlier, verse 1. Zechariah says, I looked again and there before me was a flying scroll. He, being the angel that's been talking with Zechariah in these visions, he asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. Now, Generally in Zechariah's day, uh, God's word, the scriptures, the Bible, they were written on a scroll. Uh, Like we might associate uh, God's word with a big black book or a Bible, uh, a codex, um, or maybe an app on our phone for Zechariah, God's word, he saw it as a scroll. And it's flying in the sense that God's word is getting out there uh, amongst people. Now, maybe the Israelites had forgotten or they hadn't actually been taught. Some of them hadn't been taught God's word for many many years. Maybe there wasn't a great knowledge of God's word amongst them at that time. But God says it will be. It will be as if it's flying all over the place, over the whole land, everywhere. And with everyone, God's word will be heard. But uh, the dimensions of the scroll suggest something else too. 20 cubits by 10 cubits, it's, it's pretty big. Uh, it's about as big as a fully grown elephant, uh, literally, or, or twice the size of your regular roadside billboard, right? So, so literally, uh, it's a pretty big scroll, which is imposing in and of itself. But what's intriguing is that Zechariah gives these exact dimensions, which match well-known dimensions at the time elsewhere, particularly in the temple. So the porch in Solomon's temple, just outside the holy place, the size of the cherubim over the ark and the holy of holies, and even the bronze altar outside of uh, Solomon's temple, uh, these all have dimensions of 20 cubits by 10 cubits. As such, like the candelabra, the menorah, in the previous vision was a sign of God's presence, so this scroll of God's word measuring 20 cubits by 10 cubits is also a sign of God's presence, right? Uh, It's saying where God's word is, so he is. I uh, I watched a uh, YouTube clip the other day of Stephen Fry uh, reading a letter that Nick Cave, uh, the musician and writer, wrote to some fans, Leon and Charlie, that that was the fans' names. It was fascinating. Uh, There was Stephen Fry reading a letter someone wrote who wasn't physically there to a large crowd in London's Royal Albert Hall, like there were thousands of people there, just listening to a letter being read, but it was as if Nick Cave was there. His words, powerfully read by Stephen Fry, as you can imagine, gave more than a sense that Nick Cave was present in his words. And everyone applauded. Well, in the same way, in a more profound way, given God is not bound by a body as we are, not bound in time or limited by death as we are, to hear God's word in a very real sense is for him to be present in the hearing. Indeed, where God's word is, profoundly, God is there. Which is an arresting thought if you let it sink in. And a pretty confronting one if you've been ignoring him and his ways. Which brings us to the second point, 
God's law exposing sin. As uh, Zechariah's vision anticipates in verse 3, where we read, And he, in this vision, and the angel speaking to Zechariah, said to me, This is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished, and according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out, and it will enter the house of the thief, and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. So in this vision, God's, God's committing to sending his flying scroll, his word, particularly his curse word, throughout the earth. But what is God's curse word? Well, it's the promise of utter misery and destruction for all who disobey him. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy in the Bible uh, details this misery and this destruction from diseases to, uh, to war to madness to oppression with no hope of rescue. And Zechariah's vision uh, is the promise that these curses, they will get into every home, get into every household, everyone will know them, and all who've broken God's laws, they will know they've broken his law, and they will know what's coming. And it's interesting to note which broken laws Zechariah, his vision is focuses on, right? It's on stealing, false testimony, and misusing the name of the Lord, misusing God's name. You might recognise these as uh, three of the Ten Commandments. Don't steal, don't lie, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, which in many ways, these three, they sum up the whole of God's law. Uh, Jesus summed up the whole of God's law how? He said, love God and love your neighbour. That's summing up the whole of the law. Because to steal, then, is is to not love your neighbour. Like, duh. Uh, Neither is testifying falsely about them, Right? But to do this in the name of God, in a formal setting at least, you know, you put your hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Well, to then lie, having done that, is to take the name of the Lord in vain. It's to take the name of God in vain. It's not to love God. To lie about someone then is to hate God. To not love someone, to not give them what God expects is due to them, it's actually to steal from them. And so it's to hate God. And this is what God's law powerfully does. It exposes what's wrong with people and why God is is justifiably angry at them. Uh, In his book, uh, Works of Love, the uh, 19th century philosopher and Christian thinker, I'm going to get his name wrong, but Soren Kierkegaard, or Kierkegaard, depending on who's saying it, Uh, he talks about loving people uh, in words and actions, but he says this, it's pretty cool. He says, your friend, your beloved, your child, or whoever is the object of your love has a claim upon its expression, also in words, when it really moves you inwardly. The emotion is not your possession, but the others. The expression of it is his due, since in the emotion you belong to him, who moves you and makes you conscious of belonging to him. And this is true. Any emotion of love or care or concern that we might have for somebody, it's not ours to keep to ourselves, Because it properly belongs to the one who's aroused that emotion in us. But that means if we don't express it, then we rob them. We rob them of what's due to them. We steal from them. And how many times have you and I done that? Countless, surely. 
How many times have we seen or heard of someone in need, seen them maybe standing by themselves after church, for instance, had the spark of compassion for them, and then said nothing? Or maybe worse, we haven't even noticed them because we're too busy enjoying the company of our friends or family or those that we know and like, and we haven't said a thing to them. And at that moment, we're thieves. And God's law, love your neighbour as yourself, condemns us. And that's just withholding the kind words that others deserve from us, let alone the kind and merciful things that Jesus tells us and encourages us to do for them in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, just last week, uh, there were a couple of kind of key moments where I heard of people loving others, having them in their homes, driving them to hospital, caring for them. And if I'm honest, it made me feel guilty. Guilty for not loving people more. It's like God's command to love your neighbour as yourself is just there, flying around in my head, as God wants it to be. Not just for me, but for all of us. And to persevere ignoring that command, ignoring God's law, that'll ultimately destroy us. Which brings us to the final point. Sin will consume the sinner. As Zechariah's vision reveals in the final bit of verse 4, it will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timbers and its stones. The yit there, that's the flying scroll. That's God's words of curse on the thief and the liar. And that word will remain in the house and the thief and the liar and consume them. How? Well, three ways, I think, at least. First, it'll rack their minds with guilt. Uh, King David, he knew something of this crushing guilt when he wrote uh, in his psalm, Lord, because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. There's no soundness in my bones because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. I'm feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. Who hasn't felt like that in some case at one stage or not? As we've wrestled with our sinfulness. This is what God's law and curse does. It exposes and it condemns such that we might even feel physically sick. This is God's judgment felt in our bodies. It's a design feature, I reckon, of our bodies that they thrive in the truth and they thrive in sharing. So it's no surprise that they get sick and they suffer with stealing and lying. Who knows how much antidepressants are taken by people just trying to deal with their guilt. The guilt of disobeying God's word consumes people's minds and it consumes good relationships. We all know good relationships rely on trust and sharing, right? There's, but there's only so much a relationship can handle when someone keeps lying and keeps stealing. Lying and stealing turn good relationships into pain and heartache. And who hasn't suffered from a broken and painful relationship at some stage? Anyone? If you have, then you've been touched by lying and stealing. And it's naive to think that you haven't been somewhat a perpetrator as much as a victim. God's curse on those who break his law, it'll consume their minds with guilt, consume their relationships with heartache and pain, and finally it'll consume their whole person in eternal destruction. But this is the promise to all who break God's law. At the end of the age, 
Jesus will return and judge the living and the dead and all who've sinned will go to an eternity of destruction in hell where there will be no truth but the truth of suffering and where there, will be, there is nothing to share but the singular personal torment of never-ending misery and regret and there is no escape from this first judgment because we're all thieves and we're all liars. We've all stolen from our neighbour what belongs to them, whether that be our respect or our love. We're all lawbreakers. And so we're all desperately and hopelessly cursed. Which is why we need Jesus. And why his death on that cross is such a relief for us. As the Bible says elsewhere, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. It's a worthwhile exercise, I think, going back to passages like Deuteronomy chapter 28 that detail all the curses of the law and applying them to Christ to get a feel for the weight of what he suffered in our place, to get a feel for the absolute destruction that he endured as the thief, as the liar in our place. The full force of God's curse crushed him to his foundations, timbers and stone, his whole house, so to speak, was consumed by God's curse on our sin that he took on himself A few years ago when I was doing martial arts, uh, a martial art called Krav Maga, uh, I can remember sparring with this uh, one guy. I was always teamed up with him, sucked, because he was a unit. He was like a, a massive guy. And we were encouraged to, to go hard. Uh, and so he did. One day he dropped me, uh, he, he knocked the wind out of me, and then he jumped on top of me. Um, cutting off what felt like the blood to my head. And I actually had a moment of panic uh, because the ferocity of his attack and his, his significant weight on me I meant that I was actually felt like I was going to pass out. Uh, my vision started to go white, uh, started feeling really faint. But then he got off me. And I'll tell you what a relief that was. The air rushed back into my lungs. Uh, the blood started flowing more freely than my brain. And I realised that I was very much alive. I reckon a little bit like this, our sin, the curse of God's judgment, of God's law, it's a, it's a ferocious knockdown and weight. And it promises to crush us to eternal death. But Jesus, by becoming a curse for us, he lifts that weight off us. So we might breathe again. And realise that we're very much alive. Alive to God. Alive to his ways. Which actually brings us back to where we started. And his command to love your neighbour as yourself. Which, while it may not consume us in the sense of damning us for our lovelessness. For how much we steal love away from others. Since we know that Jesus has lifted the curse off us. I reckon... Nonetheless, this command can and should still prick our consciences, shape us more and more into the likeness of Jesus to love our neighbour as he did. And here's the thing, 
It had seemed that love your neighbour, according to Jesus, according to the parable of the Good Samaritan, looks exactly like hospitality. Now, you may may have heard that the uh, Greek word in the Bible for hospitality is made up of two words, love and stranger. As such, it has seemed that hospitality, something the Bible calls Christians to do over and over again, is to love the stranger. To have people that we don't know, people who are not our friends yet, people who are not family, people who we don't normally rub shoulders with, people who are needy in one way or another, even if only for company, to have them in our home, in our houses, in our space, to share our lives, to share our resources with them. It seemed to me that this is precisely what Jesus means, what God means when he says, love your neighbour. Be hospitable. And I don't think it's any accident that where we see God's word in Zechariah's vision going, where is it going? Into people's homes. Because maybe that's where we break God's law to love our neighbour the most. In our homes. As we fail to show mercy to people who are in need. As we fail to share what we own in the space that we call home, that we often so idolatrously guard for us and ourselves to the exclusion of strangers. I was listening to a challenging podcast this week called With All Due Respect, hosted by a couple of Christian thinkers. Anyway, they interviewed uh, Dr. Rob Stokes, the new CEO of a group called Faith Housing Alliance which is the peak body representing community housing providers, organisations and individuals united in a by a faith mission. And he made a compelling case that loving our neighbour looks like caring about those who have no homes. And that in our current crisis, housing crisis, as we contemplate the homes and the houses that we live in and invest in and cherish as our own private castles, safe from the world out there, there, safe from the tax man, safe from the troubles and worries of others, from the needy, maybe we need to see the command, love your neighbour as yourself, flying around our houses a little bit and freshening up our hearts. And I'll pray that that's the case. Almighty God, we thank and praise you for your word, although scarifying, is good. Please let your law, your good law, move us to not only embrace Jesus afresh, taking the curse of the law for us, but prompting us to love like him, to love our neighbour to love the stranger. And we pray this in his name. Amen.